these if you were here last week, but for the several people um, were not here. So I need to retell them because they are an introduction to what we're going to talk about today. Today's sermon's related to last week's. It's not the same topic, though. It's a word that I've been working on actually really for two years, looking up verses and a sermon that's been burning in my heart, and the Lord would never give me a chance to do it. And today's the day. So I'm excited. Here we go. Story number one, uh, family relatives, multiple generations back. It's nobody that's alive today, but there's a family story of uh, a husband and wife and several generations ago that had a really bad, difficult marriage. He was particularly mean to her, and I don't know what all she had to endure, but one day was particularly bad in whatever it was he said and did to her. And the family story is that as she was in bed that night, she prayed, Lord, please don't ever let him talk to me that way again. And in the night, he had a massive stroke and he never spoke again in his life. She prayed, God, don't ever let him talk like that to me again. And he didn't. So story number two is from John Bevere. There was a church in the southwest United States in an area that had a high population of Mexican immigrant farm workers. And the pastor wanted to reach out to this population of Mexican migrants and seven elders in his church and they were unanimous that they did not want those people in their church. They said, we have a certain demographic, we have a certain image and we do not want migrant Mexican farm workers as part of our image in the community. The pastor was livid. It's like, you cannot be serious that you would be that evil toward God and people, and they were unanimous. The standstill happened over a, a course of weeks enough that the pastor resigned in protest against his elders. In less than a year, all seven elders were dead. Every single one of them. The pastor went on to be very successful in God and in his career, and the elders, every single one of them died. Story number three is story of a youth pastor that I know personally, grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. His dad was an elder in a church, and his dad came to learn that the pastor was having an affair. He went to confront the pastor with the evidence that he had that you're having an affair, and in that meeting, he discovered that two of the other elders knew about the pastor's affair and were covering for him. And he said that my friend's dad said, this absolutely will not stand. If you get up on stage on Sunday and start to preach, I will tell the church that you are a fraud and then you're done. The other two elders told my friend's dad, if you do that, we will kill you. So Sunday came and the pastor got up on stage to preach and my friend's dad got, went right up on stage, interrupted him and said, this is not going to happen you need to know, church, that this man is having an adulterous affair and these two guys are covering for him. From the front row, two elders pull out pistols. This is 20 years ago, Phoenix, Arizona. Two elders pull out pistols. And he pulls his suit jacket back and he has one on each hip. And he says, I didn't bring these to defend myself. I'm prepared to die. I only brought them in case you go for my wife. He says, if you go for my wife, I will kill you. If you kill me, I will let you. But everybody here is going to know that this man is a fraud and this cannot happen. 
Well, to make a long story short, nobody got shot. Thank God. No shooting in the church that morning. But my friend's family left the church and most of the people left the church. In six months to a year, both elders and the pastor were dead. Both elders died struck by lightning. That is statistically impossible. You thought it was a joke. A cartoon got up there with his lightning bolts. The elders died of lightning strikes and the pastor died in a car wreck. Fourth story that I have told you in the past, but most of you have not heard this one because it was several years ago. Sarah's best friend back in Arkansas, she was a bridesmaid in our wedding. She's a couple years older than us, married about five years before us. Uh, After 15 years of marriage, decided she hated her husband and she began an affair with a much younger kid. She's 36 or 8. She began an affair with a very young man, was horrendously offended with her husband, wanted to divorce him and leave him, but they had a son that she didn't want to hurt. She was in love with this man she's having an affair with, doesn't like her husband, is living in sin. Her husband's completely ignorant of the fact that she's having an affair. She was truly a Christian and realized that she was horrendously trapped and was sick with the situation and hated herself and her husband, was truly, thought she was truly in love with this younger man, was just miserable. After several months, I don't know how long, but it seems like it was about three or four months. This is about four years, five years ago. She prayed one night. She said, God, the only way out is for one of the three of us to die. She prayed, God, the only way out is for one of the three of us to die. The next day, the very next day, she is in the car with her lover, and they have a car wreck, a one-car wreck. Nobody else was hit or hurt, nobody involved. He was instantly dead, and the car started on fire. She was completely unharmed. But the car door wouldn't open. It was bent shut. So she's, the car is burning, and she's screaming and trying to get out. No one else was involved in the wreck. There's nobody else there to help. But she says, a black woman appeared outside the door and opened the door that I couldn't open. She said, there was no black woman there when we had the wreck. And she said, she got me, drug me out of the burning car, and then I never saw her the rest of the incident. She was gone. She believes it was an angel. As police and bystanders and ambulance and everybody comes, the car continues to burn and her lover's body is burned to ash. There's literally not even bones left. The car burned so hot. She had given him a ring. The ring was on his hand and the fire was so hot that the metal just melted and disappeared. God answered her prayer. God, the only way out of this is for one of the three of us to die. The very next day, that happened. She still was offended with her husband and she divorced him and it's been a tragic story ever since. But as I tell you these four stories, I'm saying very plainly, God did this. God struck the man with the stroke. God killed the elders who would not reach out to poor people that they didn't like. 
God killed the hypocrites in the church who were hiding sin. And God killed the man who dared to touch a married woman. And I know that some of you will have to go through theological gymnastics to say that God didn't do it. Because God doesn't kill people. I'm here to tweak your nose this morning. I realize that what I'm about to say is super controversial, especially if you have a background in word of faith or healing or you have some Bethel training. But I'm here to say that God did those things in judgment of sin. The same way he did it in the Old Testament, he is the same today, yesterday, and forever. We live in the truths of, as Chris Valentin says, we live in this tension of truths and two of the hardest truths to reconcile in our own hearts and minds is the salvation of God and the vengeance of God. That God loves us and wants us saved, but he also judges sin. It's abundantly clear in the Old Testament that God takes credit and he is given credit for judgment and death. And anyone who claims otherwise is just ignoring it. But then we come to the New Testament and we hear about salvation and great love and kindness and peace on earth, goodwill toward men and for God so loved the world and I came to bring life. So early in the church age, while the apostles even were still alive, the original apostles, there became a heresy that there were two gods. That Yahweh of the Old Testament was an evil God and the father of Jesus was the good God. And the apostles had to combat that heresy saying, no, the God of the Old Testament is the father of Jesus Christ. And I don't know of any modern preachers or believers who would say that, but I know many preachers and teachers and authors and believers whose ideas about God line up exactly with that. So strongly that they, they would not say it this way, but they, in effect, they believe it was God that changed at the cross, not us. The tension of having to believe in this all-loving, gentle, kind Father God who is also to be feared for his planet-destroying wrath toward sinners is too much for most Christians to wrap our brains and hearts around because we have a foundational propensity toward legalism. And we hate uncertainty and we avoid the unknown like the plague and faith terrifies us. So we tend to make laws that are concrete that we understand that God is always this way or he is never this way or he used to be a certain way but now he doesn't behave that way. And then we have to explain everything else away that contradicts what we have decided to believe. So modern evangelical and spirit-filled Christianity has made a concrete law out of God's goodness as we get to define it, which is an earthly goodness that would never be painful or costly or judgmental or angry or frightening that God certainly would not really actually require repentance, and he certainly would never spank me for my sin. And those who take this line out really far end up with Santa Claus for their father and Jesus with a dopey smile and a creamy lotiony hands and books that tell the world there is no hell and that love wins. And so we end up with a church in gross unholiness and a world who, if they believe in God at all, thinks that God loves them in their sin. The message of repentance is caricaturized into some crazy street preacher shouting turn or burn through a megaphone. And the message of God's coming judgment is completely squelched. And as I said last week, we tell the world such an all-loving, 
fearless God sort of gospel that there really is no compelling reason for them to be saved because they're already loved as much as they're ever going to be. But there are two sides to the gospel coin. There's the salvation of God and the judgment of God. In the past, there does seem to be some leaning toward self-righteous, judgment of sinners kind of Christianity. So in reaction of that, the present modern church goes out of her way to present love and healing and acceptance while actively avoiding or even emphatically denying the truths of God's wrath, judgment, and punishment of sin. But the power of the Spirit in Acts flowed in the apostolic church when they lived in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Acts 9.31 The apostles refused to put God in a doctrinal box to turn God into a robot of goodness or fearsomeness. They taught the people to live in the tension of these two. That the church, not the world, the church must live in the fear of God. We don't fear him if there isn't something to fear. And knowing that he is also our comforter at the same time. That he is not a rule, he's not a law, he's not a doctrinal system, he is a person. And there are two sides to our gospel coin, the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Jesus spoke about this when he compared himself and John the Baptist. Matthew 11, I talked to you about this a year ago, but I want to revisit it for a little bit. Matthew 11, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist and he's talking about to the Pharisees. He says, you hated him and I'm the complete opposite and you hate me too. Nobody can make you happy. So here he says, Jesus speaking, but to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We played a funeral song for you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. So a year ago, I'm not going to re-preach that sermon, but a year ago I just pointed out that John and Jesus, their style and their message are nearly completely opposite. John comes calling people snakes and vermin, and who warned you to repent and flee the coming wrath? And Jesus comes with hugs and healing and salvation and forgiveness, and Jesus specifically says, John is not soft. But the Pharisees hated John, and then Jesus did the opposite, and they weren't pleased then either. Jesus says, wisdom is justified by her children. Meaning, John's style and message and my style and message are both wisdom. Amen? Okay, so in this passage, he compares, he says... We are like children sitting in the marketplace calling out. Who's that? That's John and Jesus. That's their preaching. And he says, we played the flute, but you didn't dance. And then, so we played a sad song and, and you didn't cry. Jesus is pointing out the Pharisees are completely unmoved by the gospel in any form. Yes? Those that are calling out are John and Jesus. And the Pharisees are not pleased with John nor with Jesus. So Jesus says, both John and I are wisdom's children meaning both of us are doing what is wise. And at that time a year ago, I pointed out that people have different styles, different spirits, different ministries, different um, callings, and, and there are people who are all about loves and hugs and acceptance, and, and other people are about warning and repentance and turn from sin, and both of them are exactly 
correct, even though they are very opposite messages. Jesus says, we're both wisdom's children. John's message of repentance and flee the coming wrath and Jesus' message of love and salvation and healing and forgiveness are both wisdom. Mike Bickle points out that Jesus lays out the two parts of the gospel here, that we have the wedding song and the funeral song. We have a message of joy and salvation and freedom and healing and love and beauty. That's the dance of the bride. And we also have the message of the end of the world and the justice of God and the judgment of sin. That's the funeral song. And Jesus says here, the world doesn't want to hear either one. We can't make them happy. But they're both wisdom's children. Both messages are wise. I just want to point out here that John, Jesus references the Pharisees thought John had a demon. John is kind of crazy. He's probably literally wild-eyed, wild-haired guy. He lives in the wilderness. He doesn't comb. He doesn't bathe. He dresses in really weird clothes and, and eats wild food. And he and he's out there preaching, shouting, turn or burn. And whatever he had in his message was so powerful that the crowds came from Jerusalem out in the wilderness to hear him. It was not ungodly. It was not, he, I think his style, maybe even his face, was quite angry and intense. Jesus says he's the greatest man ever born of woman. It's actually the verse before this. But Jesus says, I come doing the exact opposite. I don't fast, I feast. I'm not out in the wilderness, I'm in the cities. I'm not a loner, mystic hermit like John. I'm the life of the party. And you religious, pointy-headed bigots aren't happy with either one of us. We're both wise. But they saw and heard John, and they said, that man is possessed. Well, he was possessed. He was possessed with the fire of God, but they called it a demon. They heard his gospel, and they attributed it to the devil. Then what happens with Jesus later? He gets called Beelzebub, which is another name for Satan. They, the Pharisees saw what Jesus did, and they said, that's the devil. And then his own disciples see Jesus walking on the water, and what do they think it is? They think it's a ghost. They see what Jesus is doing, and they think, that's evil. That's scary. Get away from us. I'm here to tell you that God is still, Jesus is still being called the devil today. By the world... When we preach the gospel of truth and good news, the world says, that's hateful, that's judgmental. We don't like that. They hear the good news from heaven and they say, we're from hell. They hate us. But the church also accuses Jesus' work, God's work, of that we give credit to the devil. Because we refuse to accept his holiness and his judgment, people are binding the devil when God is actually trying to get somebody's attention. You're praying for breakthrough, thinking you're fighting the devil, but really it's God that needs to break through your sinful heart. God moves in judgment from heaven and we tell the world, oh, he would never do anything like that. Not anymore. I'm warning you. I'm really, really going to tweak your nose. I will come around. Just please listen to the word of the Lord. I'm talking about things like Hurricane Katrina. Sandy, Ebola, AIDS, tsunamis, deaths like the stories that I 
told you in the beginning. Sicknesses that result from sin. These things are God's actions and the church blames the devil. But Mitch, it's the devil who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus came to give life and that more abundantly. I know. I know. We've all heard that. We've got a lot of preachers that camp out on that and ignore everything else. I've heard, I've read, God doesn't kill anybody anymore. Those days are over. That was the Old Testament. Now it's the New Testament. I've heard Jesus never rejected or punished anyone. He certainly would never kill anyone. I have heard many times God can't make anyone sick because he doesn't own sickness. There is no sickness in heaven, so God can't and don't, doesn't and won't make anybody sick. I have heard Jesus took all the punishment of God at the cross and God is not angry at anyone anymore. I know what the preachers say. I read the blogs and the books. I know what you've been taught, what you believe. Let's look at what God actually says about himself instead of what the preachers say. In Luke 12, Jesus is speaking and he says, I say to you, my friends. So who is Jesus talking to? Not the world. He is talking to us. Born again, believers, Christians, the children of God. Jesus says this to us. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that they have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast you into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Jesus, Savior of the world, lover of our souls, who would die to buy our souls, sent by his Father because his Father loves so, us so much. Jesus says to us, the believers, under grace, you better be really seriously afraid of my dad because who does the killing don't fear man they can only cure the body fear my father who after he has killed can send you to hell come on jesus said that doesn't match up with a lot of modern preaching but jesus said it Revelation 2, Jesus speaking, says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual sin, and she did not. Indeed, I will cast her into a sick bed. Jesus says, I will make her sick. Well, I've heard lots of times that Jesus is only a healer. He would never make anybody sick. I've heard, well, it's just the consequences of their own sin. No, Jesus said, I will do it because she is sinning on purpose and won't repent. I have been patient. This is not Jesus just ripping off on her in a fit of anger and wrath. He's not capricious or mean. He's like, I've given her all the time possible, but I will do it. I will make her sick. And those who commit adultery with her in great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds, I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. That sounds a lot like the Old Testament. People sinning and thinking they're getting away with it, and God kills them. But that's not. It's Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 2.8, when the man of lawlessness will be revealed, the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. The Old Testament is full of stories of God's judgment of sin, resulting in sickness and death and disaster. 
God gives Miriam leprosy for her rebellion against her brother Moses. God actually makes Moses' arm leprous as a miraculous sign, just randomly. Just a very strange story. God causes all the plagues of Egypt, including killing the Egyptian firstborn with an angel from his presence. Exodus 32:35 says the Lord plagued the people because they worshiped the golden calf. Numbers 16 says the Lord opened the earth and swallowed rebels against Moses, and then he kills 14,000 people who sided with them. Numbers 25, God kills 24,000 people at an orgy one night at an idol's temple. Just takes them out. 24,000 people in one night. He declares famines and droughts. He brings floods and storms. Isaiah 29 says, I will lay siege to Jerusalem. He abandons Israel's army so that they will lose. And all of this, God personally takes credit through his prophets. He does not say, I'm turning you over to the natural consequences of your sin. He says, I am bringing it on you. I am doing it myself. Exodus 4, he says this to Moses, Who made man's mouth? Who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, and the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall say. That's not, that doesn't line up very well with a lot of the preaching I've heard. That is directly from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 29, God says he will personally curse those who excuse themselves in their sin. When a man hears the words of this curse of sin, but he blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my own heart as though the drunkard could be included with the sober, then the Lord will not spare him, for the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man, and every curse that is written in this book will settle on him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven, and the Lord will isolate him for adversity according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law, so that your children will see the plagues of that land and the sicknesses which the Lord has laid on it. God personally takes credit for all that stuff. Again, this is not God being mean. He isn't going to strike you with lightning because you sinned. This is somebody who knows what is right and intentionally ignores it and says God won't do anything about it. This isn't God, you messed up and you accidentally cussed or you lost your temper again and God's ready to just strike you. This is someone who intentionally believes they are getting away with hiding sin from God. 2 Kings 8, God calls for a famine that'll last seven years. There's a drought and a famine. No, Mitch, it's, it's the devil that comes to steal, kill, and destroy, not God. No, that's not what he said. In Nahum chapter 1, he says this, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. He will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the tornado and in the storm. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the fierceness of his anger? Nahum says God is in tornadoes, floods, and earthquakes. I have a preacher that I honor very highly. I love him with all my heart. He is a great man of God. He has an entire sermon on the fact that God is never in tornadoes and hurricanes because God would not bring destruction and kill people. This is directly the opposite of the Word of God. I know I'm really, really tweaking some of you. Please stay with me. Amos 3, 
Prophet Amos says this, when disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Modern Christians would say, absolutely not, it was the devil. In Ezekiel 9, Ezekiel has a vision in heaven. I'm going to read you the entire chapter. It's really short. Ezekiel is seeing into heaven and he's hearing God talk to his angels about, again, unrepentant people who claim to be the people of God, but they are not living holy. This is not um, just one-time sin. This is not people who are honestly living life as best they can. This is people who think they're getting away with their sin. Ezekiel hears and sees this. God called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men, these are six angels, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north. Each had a battle axe in his hand. One among them was clothed in linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. And they went in and stood before the altar. And the glory of God of Israel had gone up from the cherub and where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he saw the man clothed in linen with the inkhorn. And he said, go through the midst of the city. Go through Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. To the others, he said in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare and do not have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. But do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin in my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. And then they said to them, defile the temple, fill the courts with the dead bodies, go out. And they went out and they killed everyone in the city. And so it was that while they were killing them, I was left alone and I fell on my face and I cried out, ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? And he said to me, the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great and the land is full of bloodshed, the city full of perversity. And they say the Lord has forsaken us and, was not, and does not see, but I do see. My eye will not spare, and I will have no pity. I will recompense their deeds on their own head. And the man with the linen cloth and the inkhorn re returned back and said, I have done as you commanded. I just want you to see that, in fact, death and sickness and plagues and natural disaster and bad weather and military losses are attributed to God, not the devil. And I know that some of you would still say, well, Mitch, that's the Old Testament. God isn't that way anymore. Well, the first three examples I gave you were Jesus. And in the New Testament, we do have the story of God striking King Herod because of his pride. And we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira. But I know that many of you would say, you, Mitch, you can't have it both ways. This isn't the gospel. It isn't salvation. You can't have a God that loves sinners and wants to save them while he's angry at them and wants to kill them. An angry God would never say, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Some of you and I have heard Bill Johnson say, you can't believe in a God that makes people sick and then his son goes around healing them. And Bill Johnson says, we have to interpret the Old Testament through the cross, which is exactly correct. But it's only half the truth. We have to interpret the cross through the Old Testament. Because without the Old Testament, Jesus' death makes absolutely no sense. So I say that the message of salvation makes no sense at all unless there is something we need saved from. And if God wouldn't kill us, then we don't need Jesus. Mitch, you're absolutely nuts. Are you saying that Jesus saves us from God? Absolutely. 
But God loves us and sent His Son. Jesus is God Himself in the flesh. Absolutely. Yes. True. Let's look at some more verses that show us how bipolar God is. I mean it. God is so totally bipolar. This truth's intention. In 1 Samuel 2, this is Hannah's song where God opens up her barren womb and gives her a child. She gets pregnant with Samuel. She says, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among the princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. Amen. In Isaiah 45, God says, I make peace and create calamity. That's, that's why the New Testament can say, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. That is not a dichotomy that God can't handle. That I will create peace with war. Come on now. Deuteronomy 32, God says, I wound and I heal, I kill and I revive. Daniel 2, he removes kings and raises up kings. In Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego says, Our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not bound down to your stupid idol. They didn't make God into a robot. that They knew ahead of time what he would do. Because they had decided God is always like this or God is never like this. If you have a predetermined doctrine that, that you could say in every situation God will always do this, you believe in a system. You believe in a robot. You believe in a doctrine and not a person who deals with people as we live our lives. And he responds according to our hearts, whether we are soft or hard. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we don't actually know which one God will choose. We know he's totally able, but he might not. He might have us die. We don't care. They didn't see that as any conflict. That is faith. That I will trust him no matter what. He might do this and he might do that. And the Spirit will lead me because I'm not going to make a law out of either of these truths. Do you hear me? Next is Job 2. His wife says, why don't you curse God and die? And Job says, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Indeed, shall we accept good from God, but not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. You've got the other statement in Job, very famous, that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Years ago, I got such emphatic, powerful teaching on the fact that when Job says the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, that that's Job speaking in his self-pity and his it's self-righteousness toward God. And yes, it's in the Bible, but it isn't a true idea about God. I got that so powerfully that when Ted would lead that song, I wouldn't sing it. He gives and takes away. He gives and takes... Sarah and I wouldn't sing that song. It's not true. Well, that's what we've been told. Here he says, I gladly accepted everything good God give me. Shall I not accept the bad he gives me? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. That was not wrong. Job did not lie against God. That yes, this trouble was from God. But Mitch, the story clearly says it's the devil that did it. God gave him permission. The devil can't do anything without God's permission. He can't create or do anything. Next is Psalm 60. This is King David. He's been out to war 
and Joab's army got annihilated. And David writes this psalm in worship to God. He sees no problem in saying that God is the cause of our defeat and God will bring us victory. He has no problem seeing God as both. The one who caused the problem and the one who will fix the problem. Psalm 60, David. O God, you have cast us off. You have broken us down. You have been displeased. Restore us again. You have made the earth tremble. You have broken it. Please heal it, for it is shaking. You have shown your people hard things. Save us with your right hand and hear me. Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? Give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. For it is he who shall tread down our enemies. David has no problem seeing God as the author of their problems and the fixer of their problems. Because God deals with them based on their heart. David, if you read through all of the Psalms, you'll figure out what David thinks is, and it's Joshua's concern in Joshua when they go against Ai and they get defeated. When they're just coming off this great victory in, in Jericho, they go against Ai and they get smashed. And immediately Jer Joshua says he falls on his face before God and he says, where have we sinned? They didn't blame the devil. They didn't blame it on bad military strategy. They didn't blame it on as a bad or an unlucky day. This is God's fault. God, save us from what you just did to us. He falls out on his face and said, God, I know this is you, but you are our only solution. We brought this on ourselves by our own sin. If you know the story, you know Achan had stolen stuff out of Jericho, but no problem there. It's not seen as a, a problem. In Psalm 71, it says this, you who show, have shown me great and severe troubles shall revive me again and bring me up again from the depths of the earth. You shall increase my greatness and comfort me on every side. We don't know who wrote Psalm 71. It doesn't have an author listed, but this guy doesn't see a problem with it either. God, you have brought, given me great trouble in life and you are my only hope to get out of those troubles. In Hosea, we see a beautiful, fantastic version of this conversation between God and his people. In Hosea 5, God says this, I will be like a lion to Ephraim. That's another name for Israel. Like a young lion to the house of Judah, I, even I, will tear them and go away. God emphatically says twice, this is me that's doing this. I will tear them and go away and I will take them away and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. But Mitch, it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Yes, absolutely true. But God also says affliction leads us to him. Is that not true in your life? It is in mine. I go to God when he's good and I go to God when I'm in trouble. It's not one or the other, it's both. And God can do whichever one he pleases to get through to me. He says, in your affliction, you will come to me. And then the people respond this way, Hosea 6.1. The people re re reply to God, come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. God tore us, but he will heal that tear. God beat us, but he will bind our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. So I'm told that I can't believe in a God that 
I'm told I can't believe God has any sickness and would never do that to somebody because of their sin. Well, that's completely contrary to the verses I have shown you. But then I'm told that, well, it's not logical to believe that God would make people sick and Jesus would heal them. Well, absolutely it is. Because his goal is always freedom and healing and salvation and restoration. But if he has to break through somebody's rebellion and pride, he will do it. He will do whatever it takes to keep us out of hell because that is love. And whatever earthly pain we bring on ourselves by ignoring him or rebelling him, he will break through that. And then, when we're broken, after he has torn us, he will heal us. Jeremiah had a very, very hard assignment from God. Jeremiah's entire prophetic career was a message to Judah that God is raising up the Babylonian army, that's Iraq. The Iraqi army is going to come and completely annihilate us. And we will all be hauled away as hostages to Iraq where we will spend the rest of our lives. And that's God. If you oppose it, you will die. If you submit to it, God will let you live and you will prosper. What a horrible message to have to preach. It would be exactly the same as if I stood up here and I said, God is done with America. We have become so wicked that God is bringing the Russian army to defeat us and he is going to annihilate our army and we're all going to live as captives in Siberia. And that is the will of God. Do you know that 99%, not only of the world's Americans and the military, 99% of Christians would say that is not God. God would not do that to us. Jeremiah's message, his entire book is, the Babylonian army is coming. It is God's will. It is actually his preservation of our nation and our people. Don't fight it. Jeremiah 24, he says this, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah, whom I have sent out of this place for their own good into the land of the Chaldeans. That's the Babylonians or Iraqis today. God says, I love you so much, I'm going to have you taken hostage by a foreign nation. And that is my tender love for you. I will set my eyes on them for good and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them and not pull them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. Then I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. That is a beautiful, tender verse. And God says, I'm going to do all this in a foreign land while you're a hostage. As the bad figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so bad, surely thus says the Lord, so will I give up Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his princes, and the residue of Jerusalem who remain in this land. I will deliver them to trouble into all the kingdoms of the earth for their harm, to be a reproach and a byword, a taunt and a curse in all places where I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them until they are consumed from the land that I gave them to them and their fathers. God very clearly makes a distinction in how he will treat people based on whether they're walking with him or not. He's not treat everybody the same. And in this case, God says, you people who submit to this, I will have you hauled off as hostages to Babylon. This is Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is Esther's family. 
probably her grandparents or great-grandparents were part of this. Daniel and the other boys were castrated as teen boys and hauled off to Babylon with hooks in their nose. And God says, this is me saving your life. I love you so much I'm doing this. Because here he says, I warn you, if you're one that I leave in the land and you're not taken off as a hostage, I'm going to annihilate you all. I'm leaving you behind to destroy you. I'm taking these others into a foreign land and I will preserve their life and bless them. In 70 years, I will bring them back to repopulate the land after I get rid of all the rest of you. No, God certainly wouldn't rip us from our homes and have us castrated and hauled off as hostages. Well, in chapter 29, he says this even more. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. God's telling you people who are hostages, do this. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, don't let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. There's that false prophet message again that God isn't going to bring disaster. Jeremiah says, God says, if I take you off, relax, be at peace, live life. Do what you need to do. Know that I'm with you. Don't listen to those that say this won't happen. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. If you care, that's the sentence that Daniel read in Daniel 9 where he reads the scroll of Jeremiah and he finds out the 70 years have happened and we're going back. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. How many of you know that verse? That is a world famous Bible verse. Did you know the context is I'm hauling you off to a foreign nation. I'm bringing an army in. They're going to burn your home and steal your crops and haul you off as a hostage I have such great plans to prosper your life. You are going to live a great life in Siberia. That's Jeremiah's prophecy. We love that verse. How many of you knew the context? Probably not very many. I'm sure some of you did. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Jeremiah has no problem seeing that God is the one who will rip us out of our homes and he was the one who will take us back to our homes. There's no problem seeing that at all because God is a person, he is not a robot. But because some of you have claimed the Lord has raised up prophets for us, that's false prophets that Zedekiah and, and the others were listening to, concerning those who have not been exiled, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending on them famine, sword, and pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs who are so rotten they cannot be eaten. 
I will pursue them with sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a curse, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them because they did not pay attention to my words, declares the Lord. I persistently sent to you by my servants the prophets, but you would not listen. Sometimes God's goodness does not come in a package that we like. Sometimes his goodness looks exactly the opposite of anything good. But it is him. Still, some of you would say, but Mitch, those are Old Testament examples. The message has changed. This doesn't happen anymore because of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers. This is not written to the world. It is written to us, God's people, dear brothers about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses, and all of them drank. All of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things happened as a warning to us. What things? the Old Testament stories of God killing people who refused to obey happened as a warning to us. Who? Those of us in Christ, let alone the world, those of us who are Christians, it's a warning. So that we will not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did and we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day that orgy I was telling you about from Numbers 25. Nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did and then died from snake bites. And don't grumble as some of them did and then were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. If you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from theirs. So we see that it is true that God breaks and he heals. He destroys and he restores. He judges and he forgives. It is true that he is the same God he has always been, judging the guilty and forgiving the repentant. It is true that if we sin on purpose without repenting, we will face the same consequences as the Old Testament Israelites. First Corinthians plainly warns us this is true. He does bring pain on nations and cities and individual people so that we will repent and return to him. Because absolutely, his will is always for salvation and healing and love and restoration and holiness and peace and joy. Absolutely. He is a saver and a healer. But he will use whatever level of painful discipline he must use to accomplish his will in a person or a society that is rebelling against him. I am not saying that every bad thing that happens is God. The devil does a lot of bad stuff. Tragedy happens that isn't God's will. Absolutely. But I'm saying we must live in faith of the tension of the pull of both of these truths and know which one it is and not decide ahead of time, well, God would never do anything like that. I'm not blaming God for every tragedy or every cancer or every natural disaster. But I'm saying those Christians who say it's always the devil are wrong. 
Because when repentance happens, he restores and heals and renews and rebuilds what he broke. He is never, ever arbitrarily mean or capricious. He is not vindictive. He doesn't have a quick temper. He wants everyone saved. Absolutely. So let's look at Second Chronicles 7, which is probably a verse that almost everybody will know. The Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, God personally takes credit for droughts. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. I'll bet you knew the second half of that by heart. But did you know that God says, I'm doing the things you're praying for me to stop? And that's what he wants. It's for us to intercede, to stand in the gap, to ask for his mercy. But if God doesn't judge sin and diseases and natural disasters and military defeats aren't from him anymore, that's only Old Testament stuff, then we can't do or preach or believe Second Corinthians or Second Chronicles 7. We've lost our moral authority to preach repentance because it isn't God. It isn't happening because of our sin. It's just happening. If there is no discipline or judgment for sin, then there doesn't need to be any repentance. Only maybe intercession. But if Katrina and Sandy and AIDS and Ebola and tsunamis are God's work, then we have some good news. If we repent, it won't happen. Hello? Katrina, the name means purity. That's not an accident. And it isn't the devil. The devil has nothing to do with purity. Do you understand that if the eye of Katrina had been a mile east or west of where it was, the storm surge would not have gone up the river and flooded New Orleans? Do you understand how small a mile is on the entire Gulf Coast? It was not an accident. The devil didn't do it. Sandy, the storm that hit New York several years ago, it was a, it was a hurricane, but it got downgraded before it hit. So it's called Superstorm Sandy. For a week we heard New York has to brace for this hurricane that's going to hit. We don't know where it's going to hit on exactly on the coast, but it looked like it was going to hit New York. And then about 18 hours before it landed, the jet stream blew it east and it curved off and it blew northeast as all hurricanes do. They travel northeast out into the Atlantic and they head toward Europe. And the meteorologists were like, we averted that one. No disaster. And then at the very last moment, Sandy, with the jet stream that always blows east, the jet streams are the big winds up in the atmosphere, two to 300 miles winds that blow the storms where they blow them. Sandy turned into the jet stream and went west right up the river to New York City. It's meteorologically impossible. I watched a video 
had nothing to do with the judgment of God or sin or anything like that. It was just worldly meteorologists saying this is absolutely impossible. We don't know how it happened. It cannot happen. The jet stream is blowing this direction at 250 miles an hour, and the storm turned into it and hit New York exactly up the river. Well, you could say, well, it was, okay, freaky things happen and nature happens and there's cycles and there's science and all that, except that David Wilkerson, who's a spirit-filled pastor in New York City, said God had showed him a vision of New York City on fire. And God told him, if my people and the people of New York do not repent, I will burn the city. David Wilkerson spent 10 years warning the people of New York City, we have to turn to God, you've got to turn away from your sin. God has shown me the city on fire. And most Christians completely ignored him because God wouldn't do that. That's judgment prophecy. That's Old Testament garbage. What happened when Sandy hit? It wasn't New York, but it was a suburb in New Jersey. Power lines started a fire. Entire blocks, I don't even know how many, for a large distance, burned completely flat to the ground. Exactly what the prophet of God said would happen, happened. It wasn't the devil. There is no question that AIDS is a result of sexual sin. Obviously, there are other ways it can be contracted, but statistically, it is a sexual sin disease. And you could say, well, it's just the natural consequences of their sin playing out in science and, and germs, and God takes credit for this stuff. He says, I bring the pestilence. The Old Testament gives credit to God for holding the ocean back on the beach. Now, we know the science of such things. But the Old Testament says God makes the wind blow. God takes credit. He says, I personally do not let this happen. I take action. When Ebola was brought to the United States by our government, people in Africa get Ebola and we bring them here. They've never had an Ebola germ on this continent and we're bringing people here to treat them, which I thought was a ridiculously arrogant idea that we can contain that thing. There was concern on my part that it would spread as it did because some of the hospital nurses got it. And I realized it didn't come to anything, but in the cycle of that, Sarah and I had quite a few conversations. I did a lot of praying. I fasted. I went to the Oregon-Idaho border, and I decreed that that would not come to Oregon. Is not In Jesus' name, it is not allowed to come to Oregon. But in the process of the conversations, Sarah and I are talking, and what if this develops like this widespread plague that would happen in the Old Testament? And what if, what if it's God? And the church says it's not. And the people need to repent, but we've lost our authority to say that. So I know that the next question is, well, if it's God, why are you praying against it? Because that's every model in the entire scripture is God breaks and he binds up. That it's him destroying the sin, but it's him that sends the Savior. That when he wants to destroy Sodom, he is pleased that Abraham comes out and intercedes. So even if I had been, and I wasn't, but even if I had been completely convinced that Ebola was going to be this plague from God and smite our nation, I still would have stood and said, you cannot come to Oregon. I would have. 
I, there's not any conflict between me and God in that. He says he's very upset that somebody won't stand in the gap between him and the people who are being destroyed. He says, I looked for somebody to stop me from doing this, but there was nobody, so I become a man myself to do it. I know that makes your head spin, but it's God. We do, in fact, have two sides to our gospel. We have to tell people that God loves them, that Jesus died for them, that he is their healer and restorer and savior, that we are saved by him, but we also have to say that we are saved from him. We must warn people that God judges sin and there's painful consequences to disobedience, that the day of the Lord is coming and they do not want to be apart from him when that happens. As a church, we must live in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That's where the power is. If we pick one side or the other, as many believers and even denominations do, we lose our power and we lose our authority. So I say, if you have sin in your heart this morning, if you have anger or hidden sin or lust, be very afraid. Fear the Lord. Repent now. You're not getting away with anything. But if you are clean before God and you have repented of your sin, your heart can be completely peaceful knowing that the same God who hated what you have done has washed it all away and you're completely clean. If my doctrine tells me that God could kill me and he would be right to do so, but he won't, I will love him very, very deeply because I know I deserve hell. But if my doctrine tells me that God's not like that anymore and he likes me, I cheapen his love. Do you hear me? We love him because he first loved us. And that love is that we deserve hell and death, but he chooses to not give it to us when we repent. But he is totally capable of doing so and still does to those who just flat out refuse. He is totally patient and kind and merciful and is not willing that any should perish. God is still God. 